Uh, hello, HTC. It's uh, great to see you all again. Thanks for coming to church today here in Victorville or other campuses and those who are watching online. Um, Cheryl and I continue to uh, attend church every week like you, and uh, we're usually out at the Phelan campus. Appreciate so much Pastor Todd's and the HTC team's continued encouragement. Um, just a real brief update. The Oikos movement continues to evolve. That's the organization we now lead. Uh, you are always welcome to stay uh, up to speed with us at uh, oikosmovement.com and even subscribe to our new YouTube channel. I guess that's the new thing now. So that's youtube.com forward slash at Oikos Movement. Uh, we're re-engaging conversations with uh, South Korea and also the nation of India, as well as maintaining continued dialogue with pastors all around the United States. So anyway, we hit the road again in a couple of weeks. Uh, appreciate your prayers for us because as uh, they often say, we ain't no spring chicken anymore. But I'm always blessed to be able to be here um, even up on this stage again and sharing the Word of God with our favorite church family in the whole wide world. Uh, this series has been an invitation uh, to join Jesus at the table. Uh, the many tables where Jesus was either uh, part of the experience as a guest or tables that he even uh, may have hosted himself. But when you talk about gathering around a table, and I know you've been a part of this series, and uh, each weekend a different table has been highlighted in, in the Gospels. But when you think about gathering around a table where our Lord was present, uh, none are more recognizable than the actual Lord's table. And so as, as we kind of begin Winding down the series, we're going to look at maybe the most important table of all, uh, where, where Jesus hosted the last meal of his earthly life. And, uh, and so as we begin our celebration uh, of the Holy Week, let's turn to Luke chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, uh, join me there. Uh, and we're going to pick up the action in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, we're going to stop right there for a minute because uh, I'm not really sure what Luke's onto here. I don't know if he had some type of double meaning when he's writing about the Passover lamb now needing to be sacrificed. But you can't help but look at that with a little smirk. You know, on your face, a little twinkle in your eye, and recognize that while the calendar is suggesting that it was time for the annual Jewish Passover celebration and the sacrifice of so many lambs in all of these Jewish homes, and you know that's going to be going on, but at the same time, for over three decades, since Simeon's cryptic prophecy about the baby Jesus. The shadow of his redemptive mission was always, always and clearly 
pointing Jesus to the cross as the perfect lamb of God. The reality of his looming death, which was within hours now, did not catch Jesus by surprise. He had always understood that the cross was where everything in his life was leading him. But you know, it's one thing to know you're going to die. Because you know that, right? You're, you're, you're dying. As you sit there listening to me speak right now, you're dying. And I've often said good health is simply the slowest way to die. So true. That's one thing to know we're going to die, because we are. But it's altogether something else to know it's going to happen within the next couple of days. See, that's got to be weird. I was talking to my brother and our friend, Tim Wheeler, days before he died. And I was struck by that same reality. I'm sitting there, and we're, we're talking, and of course, he's speaking softly. And carefully in his last few days, and I'm thinking to myself, he's gonna see Jesus soon. He had been preaching for virtually his entire life about going to heaven to see Jesus and to see whatever else Jesus had prepared for him. But understanding the gravity of his illness at that moment, and Tim just laying there knowing it was now gonna be within days. And I don't know what God's plan for me might be. If his plan for my life is to give me that kind of clarity as my own passing approaches, then that would, that would be interesting. But it's certainly got to be weird just to know that. And that's what Jesus was not knowing at this moment. Knew it was coming, but now like it's coming. So anyway, verse eight, Jesus sent Peter and John, a couple of the fellows, saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now, the guys believed that the preparations they would make that day be much like they had made every year. I mean, as Jesus gave them that charge, they're thinking, okay, this is like the routine, Right? And it's not like it wasn't meaningful to them. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but for the disciples, in many respects, like the rest of us with our own traditions, annual celebrations can become the same old, same old. We're already a quarter of the way through the calendar of this year. We just put away Christmas decorations and you're gonna have to get them out like next week. See? And it just becomes routine. But for Jesus, this time was not the same old, same old. He wasn't just going to celebrate the Passover, the annual Jewish Passover. He was going to inaugurate a new type of celebration for his church. The church that he fully intended to build after he left. Verse 9, it continues. Where do you want us to prepare for it? And that's an honest question. 
See, Passover was the kind of event you actually had to be in Jerusalem, the holy city, to share. But Jesus and the disciples did not have a residence in Jerusalem. Whenever they visited that city, they'd camp outside the city on the Mount of Olives or they'd stay with friends in the nearby town of Bethany. You remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They had quite a place, not far from Jerusalem. And so the guys said, well, where are we going to have Passover this year? There was no home to come home to. And he replied, Look at this in verse 10. It gets a little weird here. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Now, I don't know, I don't know about y'all. When I read that, I kind of see a little cloak and dagger. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you read that, and it's weird. It's kind of like Jesus says, go up to the guy and say, the rain in Spain, and he will respond with, falls mainly on the plane, and then you'll know it's the right dude. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, that actually happened, but Jesus' propo- proposal here does seem to have that undercover vibe to it, almost like it's secretive. It's like he brought the volume of his voice down to whisper in these guys' ears. And again, not sure if that is actually the case. It just seems that way to me. But see, he was fully aware about what Judas had already made in terms of arrangements with the Jewish authorities to deliver Jesus into their hands. Jesus knew that. And and having that meal with the guys, would have provided the Jewish leaders a prime opportunity to take them into custody. Just find the room where they're having a meal and you can just snatch them there. But like always, Jesus was directing every piece of this, man. He's like the orchestra conductor, right? And he's putting the whole narrative together. And he still had a lot to say to the fellas. Jesus did not want to get busted at dinner. Not when he was going to explain so much about their future and his hopes for them even after he left. And so in order to postpone the culmination of Judas's betrayal, Jesus kept the location of that meal secret until the very last minute. Jesus had no doubt already spoken with the guy. He would have obviously been a friend who would make sure they would have all that they needed there for such an important gathering. And those of you who attended the Seder service on Friday night here know that there is a lot that goes into preparation for this meal. Verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. Now, the interesting thing about the Lord's table or the Last Supper 
is that whenever pastors like us teach on that particular subject, we tend to avoid Luke's narrative. And it isn't because there's anything wrong with it, but there's just no details really provided in Luke's account here. See, as he wrote his account of Jesus' life, his whole life, not just now, but his whole life, he was keeping the narrative to a certain length. Just like all the gospel writers and all of the biblical writers would have had in their mind, a typical papyrus roll could only contain so much information. And so by the time he wrote his gospel, the ordinance of communion had already become a very well-known institution for believers throughout the church. It had been explained by the other gospel accounts. It had been uh, explained even more fully by the apostles. And so Luke can get away with being very brief here as he describes the detail of the meal itself. And so in verse 14... When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, verse 15, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know, when I think of death, and you know, suffering just before death, there's that element of the unknown. And those of us, well, none of us are quite there yet. <laughs> or we, we wouldn't be at church this weekend. Um, but it's not that we need to fear death. I think it was Eugene Peterson who put it this way. He said, I don't fear death. I'm just not looking forward to dying <laughs> because there's a difference. But when it comes to death, we don't really know what to expect. You only do it once. And so there's no rehearsal. There's really no ramp up. It's just what it is. But Jesus was not that way. He fully knew what to expect. And I'm thinking, okay, I know I'm going to go to heaven because I'm in Christ. And I know that the Bible has a plethora of little details dropped from time to time about what, they, what, they, what we should expect when we arrive in heaven. But there's still so many blanks yet to be filled in. But Jesus had been there. He knew fully what to expect. And now that his time had come, that's why he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He was starting to get excited. Now, now the cross presented a huge obstacle for his human side, his human nature, because I cannot overstate this. Crucifixion, Roman crucifixion was no joke. It was really hard. But the idea of completing his earthly mission, the culmination of God's plan of redemption, that he had come to fully engage and fulfill, to redeem the people he'd created and had always loved, and then return to his or original platform in glory? Yeah, he was, pretty, he was pretty excited about that. 
And then he says in verse 16, I tell you, I will not eat it again, this meal that we're going to share together. I'm not going to eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, of all the narrative accounts of the Last Supper, this kingdom of God seems to resonate with Luke as he's recording what Jesus said. And the kingdom of God is a very complex thing. You read about it throughout, throughout the Bible. And it has different layers. And I want to share just a couple of ideas with you. You can fill in some blanks uh, about the kingdom of God. And number one is that there is this individual element to the kingdom of God, and it's only available at the cross. That's why it comes up so clearly now. If we are going to participate in the kingdom of God, we too have to come to the cross of Christ. When you think about the idea of a kingdom, you can't have a kingdom without a king. You know what I'm saying? If you have a kingdom without a king, you just got a dumb, right? So you got to have the king dumb. And so he's the king and we're dumb. I, I just see it that way. But anyway, we live under the kingly protection the kingly provision, and the kingly direction of Jesus while we seek to fulfill his purpose through the Great Commission. And I've told you, i told you, i told you many times over the years, the Great Commission is the only thing Jesus gave us to do between his advents. And that's why it's important that we continue to share the good news of the kingdom of God and the fact that an individual can participate in it, but only if their sin is forgiven through the work of Christ at the cross. But Jesus is king, or else you got no kingdom. And when we treat Jesus like the sovereign, like a sovereign authority, he cares for us like a good shepherd. Let me say that again, because I want to make sure y'all walk out in a little while understanding this very, very, very clearly. Everybody wants Jesus to be their shepherd. And he wants to be. So it's important you treat him like a sovereign. Because he's the king. In Matthew chapter 6, I, I don't know if you remember this passage out of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't worry about nothing. He says, and then he identifies the things you tend to worry about most. Don't worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. For people who don't know God, people who don't have a shepherd in God, they run after all of these things. Why? Because they got to figure it out on their own. They got to figure it out themselves. But your heavenly father knows that you need them. And when you treat your heavenly father like the rightful king he is, you can count on the shepherd providing, protecting, and directing his flock. 
Jesus talked about the anxiety we all tend to have for food and clothes and stuff. And he talked about how we could enjoy a lack of stress if we just submitted to the sovereign will of our sovereign God. As you know, the weather's been a bit excessive lately. Uh, We've not had this much rain in the high desert in my memory. We've lived here for almost 40 years. It's just been bizarre watching the destructive element of the elements um, take place so prolifically and consistently around the globe. And it's kind of like God says to the world, okay, that's the way you want to play it. You go ahead and do your thing and I'll just do my thing. And how much the extreme weather is due to human choice or to divine indifference is probably impossible to figure out. Your particular view might not be the same as my view and all of our views depend a lot on our theology or political views. But one thing is certain, we have no control of outcomes. We have no control. We can't control the weather. We can't control people. We can't control the economy. We can't control the election. We can't control nothing, honey. Yet the promise of God remains constant. God says, treat me like a sovereign. and I will control your destiny for you. You know, someday circumstances will emerge where you'll need to trust in God's sovereignty. It was only a few weeks ago that the Wheeler family had to sit back and just dwell on the sovereign control of God in their lives. But that doesn't happen in a vacuum. A lot of Christians do not live day to day under the sovereign authority of King Jesus. And then when the storms of life hit, they doubt God's plan in it all. Have you ever noticed that? It's only when people submit to God's sovereignty over time that they're able to rest in God's sovereignty when times like that come. That's how Jesus designed his kingdom. Trust me all the time. All the time. Trust my word always. And then when the storms hit, you'll find it much easier to trust me. And that my ways are different and even higher than yours. And so there's this individual element to the kingdom of God. You've got the king and you've got us who call him king, who live as if he's king. But secondly, there's also an international element to his kingdom. There's this individual element and then an international element. And, And that international element will take place at his second advent. 
the elders mentioned in Revelation chapter 5, directing their comments to Jesus, declared in verse 9, look at this, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. See, the kingdom of God is not just individual, it's international. And you will be a kingdom. Or you will be king of this kingdom and, and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Okay, I just want to say this and I'm not going to say a lot about it. I'm just going to dig a shot across the bow. There are a lot of reasons why racism is so incredibly ungodly. But this is a big one when you talk about the kingdom. The kingdom of God welcomes equally every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And if you follow Jesus, the sooner you jump on board with that, the better. And the less shock you'll experience later when it comes to fruition. You see, Martin Luther King's dream was not new. Jesus the king has a dream. Any effort to get to know someone of a different ethnicity, any effort, effort to befriend someone of a different group or even adopt a child of a different ethnicity, you know what? That has great value to Jesus because it gives us all a head start on realizing this dream that Jesus has always, always, always had for his church. He created all of us. He died for all of us. All of us need the same grace to avoid eternal damnation. And all of us who are in Christ, regardless of ethnicity, will eventually find our rightful place because we're all together in Christ we will all be reigning together regardless of what we look like on earth. We'll all be part of this international rendering of God's forever family. Anyway, I don't know if you need to hear that, if you need a little nudge, but some of us might want to get over ourselves ahead of time. So we got this individual got this international layer to the kingdom. And, and even when Jesus taught us to pray, one of the things he mentioned was the importance of welcoming the fulfillment of his kingdom at both levels. In Matthew chapter six, verse nine, he said this then, how you should pray, historically calling, calling up, we call it Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is and will always be realized eternally. When the Apostle Paul weighed in on the Lord's table, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes back. Until his kingdom finds complete fulfillment until we experience this international flavor, you know, in its fullest, the fullest iteration of the kingdom of God. 
We take the elements of the Lord's table to celebrate the coming of his kingdom into our lives and to anticipate the international gathering of his people at his second coming. Short of it is this. On this night, at this table, Jesus is shutting down the Jewish Passover. For centuries, the meal had symbolically anticipated the arrival of the Jewish Messiah. With God as the the meal's architect, he arranged every piece of that experience with all of its symbolic meaning. But the one the meal pointed to, the king, was at the table that night. He was here now. Messiah was here now. And so in Instead of Passover, Jesus institutes a new ordinance, one for all of his church, for everyone in Christ. And this ordinance will anticipate the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And he took bread, verse 19, back in Luke 22 now. He gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to him, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, verse 20. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You know, one of, uh, my library has shrunk in the last year significantly, because I've been handing books and journals and different commentaries to other younger pastors. But one of the books I hang on to is entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus. It's written by a guy named F.F. Bruce. And in that book, uh, Dr. Bruce rolls through 70 different difficult statements that Jesus gave, Jesus made. And then he provides a perspective. The author, Dr. Bruce, provides a perspective of what Jesus may have meant or might have meant or clearly meant, depending on the text, by what he said in that particular statement. And of those 70 hard sayings of Jesus, the very, very first one comes out of John chapter 6. And it's a conversation that Jesus had with the disciples before this last meal. In John 6, 53, Jesus said to him, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh, Jesus is saying this, this bluntly. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. So obviously this is really important. And Dr. Bruce calls this the original hard saying because of the disciples' response to what he said. Look at verse 60. On hearing Jesus' words, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Who gets this? Looking around at each other. Anybody get this? It's just weird, especially realizing that for a Jew, it would have been unthinkable. You couldn't drink blood or 
even eat flesh from an animal, an animal whose blood had not been completely drained. It would have been illegal and unconscionable. And when they heard that for the first time, in fact, when you and I read it for the first time, we don't even know what it means. We're not sure we even want to know what it means. But Jesus soothes their and our fears by qualifying his words. Now in verse 63, he says, a spirit gives life, flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. In other words, Jesus clarifies he doesn't want the fellas or us or his church to be cannibals. This has nothing to do with eating literal flesh and drinking literal blood. But Jesus knows something. He knows how we're made. Jesus knows how he built you. And he built you to be a consumer. We were created to consume the presence of God into our lives. But we have exchanged in our sin. We have exchanged our appetite for God with appetites for things and for pleasure. No longer can we sit and meditate on the passage we read in our devotions and ask God to speak to us with a still small voice because we get a notification on our smartphone and we just have to take it. Can't give to the Lord's work because we saw a commercial for the shiny new toy that we just have to have. Can't invest in our children's spiritual journeys and send them to summer camp because we just saw something on HGTV that we just have to do to our house. And Jesus knew that would be so. We would be. We would all be so easily distracted away from our spiritual nourishment and being satisfied by what only Jesus can provide us by pursuing the things of this world and perhaps even forgetting where we came from. And so at this table, Jesus builds a monument so we won't forget. A monument that's very much like the monuments they built in the Old Testament. And and I just take you back for the sake of perspective to Joshua chapter four and I'm just gonna read the passage. It says, Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. This is where they're crossing over the Jordan, the, the people of Israel into the promised land. And maybe I should have told you that context before. But anyway, Joshua says, go before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan and each of you is take a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. And in the future, when your children ask you, what do those stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off upstream before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off and these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And so the Israelites did exactly what Joshua said. And they took 12 big rocks from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. And Joshua set the 12 stones that have been in the middle of the riverbed at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. And you say, well, why, why are you 
you bring that up, that was a long time before the Last Supper. But I wanted to give you context for why Jewish people built monuments. Because just like that, Jesus is building another monument at the Lord's table. And that way, every time we pass by it, we can be reminded of what Jesus' death means for each and every one of us. And when your children ask you, when they're sitting with you in church and they ask you, why do you eat that little cracker and why do you drink that little cup? What does that all mean? You tell them that Jesus body was broken and his blood was shed to pull the rug out from under the curse of death and the condemnation of our sin. And that's why we do that to this day. And we will continue to do that until Jesus comes back. See, Jesus' kingdom invites us to experience an individual submission and an international anticipation. But there's also this intentional determination that we bring to the kingdom. It's a determination that says, I refuse the distractions of the world. And I rather will focus on pursuing the kingdom of God. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom as an individual. Seek first his kingdom by acclimating to the international sense its ultimate fulfillment will give us. But seek first his kingdom intentionally. Seek his righteousness intentionally. And all this other stuff you're all sideways about. I mean, all this other stuff you came into this room today worried about. All the, the, the stressful things that those conversations this past week created in your spirit. You got a good shepherd that is going to work that out for you because you respect the king as the sovereign he actually is. And your respect takes the form of determination. You know, Jesus is the one who said, anybody who denies me or doesn't show me respect and doesn't show my word respect before men will find disrespect themselves eventually. You've heard it for years, not just for me, but the main thing in life is keep the main thing what? Main thing. Main thing. And then Jesus says, the hand of him, verse 21, then we gotta, we gotta shut this thing down. The hand of him is gonna betray me, is mine, uh, is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it had been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And then the guys all began to question among themselves which of them it might be, who would do this. Now, I just tell you real quickly, Matthew's account fills in some of the blanks for us here. 
And there we find that one by one, the disciples told Jesus, surely you don't need me. You don't mean me. I mean, it's not me, is it? And Judas was perhaps the last one to act surprised. But he was identified by Jesus, evidently in a way the others didn't notice. And then he left the table. And and that's the amazing thing. Judas knew what he'd already arranged with the authorities. Even Jesus knew what Judas was up to the entire time. And yet here's Judas trying to deflect what's incumbent on every Jesus follower. And that's simply to be responsible to submit to the king, to anticipate the fullness of the kingdom, and to focus and be determined in our collective pursuit. And there are a lot of things to distract us from the significance of our celebrations, all of our celebrations. At Christmas, we got all the bling. Thanksgiving, we got football. At Easter, we got rabbits, we got eggs. Even at communion, we have anxiety about getting out of church to pursue the rest of our affairs for the afternoon or evening. And sometimes I just sit there and I wonder about myself. What's wrong with me? This Friday, coming up. It's going to be a good one. That's why we call it Good Friday. And it's going to give us all the chance to again celebrate what happened on the day Jesus was betrayed. Because it's important. And it'll give us a chance to remember what his death meant for our redemption. Because on Good Friday, High Desert Church, you're going to pass by this monument one more time. And you're going to remember. And it's going to give you the chance to recommit your life to submit to the king. It's going to give you the chance to anticipate more the fullest expression of that kingdom at a second advent. It's going to give you the chance to recommit your life to focusing on why you're still here. And that's all going to be true for all of us who are, who are present. People need salvation from sin. That's why Jesus came. That salvation can only be found in Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for giving us a chance to open your word and just be reminded of how important it is that we bring our A-game this week to this celebration. I pray it will not be mundane. It will not become same old, same old for us. But that we would intentionally focus that our determination uh, would be greater than ever. Father, thank you for the international flavor of your kingdom and for what we're going to experience like forever, but especially that you chose me as an individual to be part of it and everybody in this room who has given their heart to Christ. And let me just say to those of you who are listening or watching as we close, have you given Jesus his rightful place as king, as sovereign, To be part of his kingdom, that is required. And this is how it goes. Number one, you got to admit your sin. 
and how you have been pursuing your own game for too long. Got to admit that. And then believe that Jesus, he came and he died. Right after this meal, he was taken into custody to die for you and me. You got to believe that nobody else can save you. And then you need to choose. I'm going to place my life under the authority of Jesus Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start following him as the rightful leader he is. And if you'd like to pray that prayer, you can enter the kingdom of God and be a part of the dumb with me. And we're just glad that we got such a great king. So Father, give us uh, what we need uh, today and all week as we prepare for a, uh, a great week, a holy week, in the great name of the one who is holy himself, even Jesus Christ, all God's children said, amen.